0: Everyone deserves to enjoy a McRib at least once in their lifetime. Because when you're this saucy and tangy and tasty, a life without one creates a serious case of FOMO. The McRib is back.
1: Don't miss the classic you've been craving. Get a McRib, filet of fish or Big Mac, and get another for a dollar. Or a mix and match. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for item of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started.
2: Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. On today's episode, we're joined by a special guest as Eric Longenhagen of Fangrass is coming on to talk about his recent Orioles top prospects list over at the site. We're really excited to have Eric on, and we will get to him in a moment. But first, uh, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business. It was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So I'll introduce our guest tonight. He is the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs.com. Uh, he has put together several excellent lists over the offseason, including his recent countdown of the Baltimore Orioles' top 45 prospects. We mentioned that on our show last week, but now we're going to take an extensive opportunity here to really dive into that list with uh, Eric Longenhagen, who was kind enough to join us tonight. Eric, how are you?
0: Doing pretty well, guys. How's, how's it going? Pretty Good. 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 Just chilling in, um, in Tempe it's spring training season. And, uh, so a lot of fresh new information flowing, uh, in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, this is, this is the stretch when it's been easiest to, to source real time stuff about prospects, uh, on mass, basically, you know, especially now that baseball savants expanded their pitch tracking during spring training to a lot of other ballparks in Florida. So a lot of great information coming in and obviously you can get sort of, a uh, a secondhand video look at guys right now um, during this time of year. So it's been that stuff in college baseball. I'm, I'm very, very busy. <laughs> say, it,
1: Go ahead. I was to say, how does it feel to be back at the ballpark now?
0: I've only gone to a couple spring training games. I've been trying to do it in very efficient, like clusters, I guess. It's not a thing I want to do like I would ideally do in a typical year, which is just go day after day after day. This is really the time of year in Arizona where uh, it's the best to, to live here. The weather's incredible. And all the colleges are here in February, uh, you know, because it's warm. So you end up with like TCU and Vanderbilt and stuff. And then uh, obviously half of professional baseball is here, but I've been trying to tick off. Like if there's, if I can do a double up in a day, And then stay home for a couple of days just to make sure that I'm asymptomatic and all that stuff. So, you know, I feel privileged to be able to go to the ballpark at all. Uh, And I tend to feel pretty safe uh, at most of the ballparks, but I'm not inoculated yet. And I just, you know, I really don't want to give COVID to anybody. That's just my worst nightmare. I feel like I'd probably be okay dealing with it on my own. Don't know that for sure. But it's just giving it to somebody else is the thing that is like an unimaginable feeling. Uh, And so I'm just trying not to do that. So I've been you know doubling up here and there hitting a day, uh, a midday game and then a night game, and then get going back to ground here in uh, at home in Tempe for a couple of days until I'm, I feel in the clear again. Nice.
2: So it's good that you're able to at least see some baseball this spring and, you know, hope as I know we're all hoping that things will get better over the next few months to get some return to normalcy. Uh, we have you on tonight to really talk about the Orioles and the, question that we wanted to start off with is kind of what is at the genesis of every move the Orioles make, which is the Michael Elias regime taking another step in this rebuild. How would you say that the farm system has changed since he took over the team uh, a little more than two years ago now?
0: Right. I mean, I guess if you're, if you're talking about the way that they went about the, the first stages of the rebuild really began before he got there. Uh, it'd be interesting to know if he could have been the one to have traded Manny Machado, what would that prospect package have been like coming back? Um, I do think that the emphasis on depth, the emphasis on getting multiple pieces at a time, uh, almost invariably during this last little while uh, has, has really exploded the, the depth of the system and made it so, and this seems to be pervasive throughout all of baseball, uh, Texas has started to really operate this way too, is let's get as many guys as we like as possible. don't have to love, but just let's get a bunch of guys that we like and apply uh, these sound developmental techniques to them, the kind of stuff that worked really, really well in this case when we were in Houston, right? And I think to, to look at especially how the pitching has developed, in Houston over time uh, should give you a lot of confidence as an Orioles fan that, that that's going to work that when you get a Zach peak, Isaac Matt, Isaac Mattson, uh, Kyle and uh, you know, that, that some of one of those guys at least is going to become a real major league arm, uh, a real part of your pitching staff. Um, and so if that's just applied to every deal where you're getting like an extra arm or two uh, as, as a, second or third piece in every deal that, yeah, you're going to really start to see uh, the seeds of that reaped two, three years down the line, as those guys have been in the system for a while. And obviously 2020 complicates that. And I think that there are probably some guys in the system who, you know, even the hitters like Gunnar Henderson, if he just has a 2020 season, then maybe he's just a, a universal top 100 prospect. That's a guy who, because he's a corner player, you'll want to see him perform statistically have that confidence that he's going to hit uh, and be able to profile there. And we just don't have that for a lot of the corner prospects across all of baseball. Uh, And so some of, I think their guys uh, have been punished by that. And then I think the other thing to note is that the operation in the draft room has to some extent mimicked what occurred in Houston too. Right. And, and, it's like old SNL sketches. I can only ever remember the good ones. I don't remember any boring sketches that Chris Farley's in. I just remember Matt Foley and stuff, right? But the Carlos Correa draft, when they cut a deal with Correa, it was going to be, you know, he it was him, Buxton. I think maybe Max Freed was in their mix too, if I'm remembering that correctly. And whoever was going to take the lowest number of those three guys is who they were going to take 1-1. And they were going to reallocate that savings to later in the draft. And they did that with Correa. And obviously they hit there big, right? And then also use that savings to sign Lance McCullers, who they wouldn't have been able to sign had they not cut at one. And now we're talking about Baltimore doing that with Heston Kerstad. He was part of, for me, a big fat tier of 50 future value guys in the middle of the top 10 picks in the draft who could be had for the lowest bonus and that allowed them to roll that into Kobe Mayo who I really really like uh you know Carter Baumler who again just 62 180 breaking ball low 90s put him in this developmental machine and see what comes out like I like this approach uh, and then they got two good college hitters there as well so they really diversified the mix that they got Uh, And I I really liked their draft uh, approach as well. So, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. You're more likely to end up with a bunch of role players in some of the, you know, Jemai Jones, Tyler Nevin types of guys uh, than you are, I think, slam dunk everyday players. But, again, if you're acquiring them in volume, then somewhere along the line one of those guys is going to pop and be a pillar of your org for the long term. So, yeah, I, I like the way they've gone about it. Can't say the same for the way the scouting staff maybe seems to be developing. Some of the stuff that happened in Houston is definitely happening in Baltimore now. Uh, Certainly during the pandemic, there are lots of good reasons to fixate on video and limit your scope to that. And there's certainly an efficiency component to doing it that way that I think is a real positive. But I think having a lot of the old scout guard around, having people go to the field, allows you to source uh, dope and rumor and all sorts of other valuable intel that doing it solely on video does not allow for. And uh, that as more and more teams do things this way, in part because of, you know, at the behest of ownership to cut costs, that the only competitive advantage will be having those old guys at the ballpark talking to the assistant coaches who they've known for 40 years. So uh, I think it's a short-sighted approach to kind of rejigger the scouting staff the way that that they've started to, although they do have people out here at, at spring training games and stuff. It's not like they're totally scoutless. Uh, but I, I would be cautious if I were to do, if I were to repeat stuff from Houston, There's, I would select some of it and, and not others.
2: So what would you say right now is the biggest strength of the system?
0: I guess that's a good question. I guess, um, I mean, Adley Rutschman... <laughs> <laughs> like you can't go wrong. Just like the strength of the system is one of the best guys. Um, and then I, I do think that it's, it's going to end up being some defensive versatility on the infield. I think that Taryn Vavra is going to play all over the place and he can really hit. And those two things, I think portend a long big league future for that guy, Jordan Westberg is going to be the same thing. Anthony Servidio has a bunch of multi-positional experience too, just because there were so many other good, Shortstops at Ole Miss while he was there, so he sort of backed into that, uh, and then yeah, I just think it's they're up to the middle contact bats and depth in pitching, and the rest is sort of going to take care of itself. Um, and I think that the depth that they've built over a short period of time is probably one of the other you know things I would identify as as a strength. Um, but uh, and then it's not like they're taking a bunch of numbers only type, you know, like you see some of these big bodied college masher type guys like Aaron Sabato at North Carolina, Brent Rooker uh, at Mississippi state, uh, the two, two guys that the twins drafted and you look at them and say, that's an analytic driven pick. It's a guy with a lot of measurable power and you would expect a team like this to do that type of thing too. And maybe there's been some of that, but more if I look at a guy like Jordan West, Jordan Westberg uh, or a Taryn Vavra, or Kyle Stowers, I'm looking at good athletes who need polish, who need some sort of help. And I think that that's speaking to an integration of the scouting side of things there, which I I do think that's a, that's a reason to do things on video and sort of warehouse things in one tightly knit place, because I think that it allows for this type of communication to be uh, easier, but it, you know, you have your scouting staff and then the, the dev piece gets integrated into it. So you're looking at a player and saying, here's what he can do here's what, what, what might need to change. And having your dev people in there to say, yeah, I can fix that. What I'll do is this, reinforces confidence that that type of guy is the right pick. Uh, and I think that there's clear evidence of that throughout the system too. Hudson Haskin, his swing is jacked up. It's hideous. But he has great underlying feel for contact and other tools. He runs well. Uh, and so you take a guy like that who's got talent That you feel more confident that you can apply relevant developmental technique to, Uh, and I think that yeah, that's that's another part of the system that seems to run through.
1: Nice. So I think Orioles fans are are pretty jacked up about this farm system now, just compared to recent years, and a lot of the hype maybe be be, might be a little bit too much at times. Uh, You know, we get a guy like uh, Natalie Rushman in the system, and Orioles fans, of course, are going to fall in love with him. And the top of this this list that you have but are there any like glaring weaknesses you see in this minor league system for the Orioles right now that
0: you'd like to see them address in the short run? Well, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting to see how it develops across baseball. And then especially in a place like this is how the pitch mix like biodiversity, if it has an impact on the effectiveness over time, like you see in a lot of systems and especially in this is a system that those backspinning, rising fastballs, they're the soup du jour, right? But if Major League Baseball, Pro Baseball starts to select for that trait more than it should, and so many of the guys, especially if they're being trained from amateur baseball lower and lower and lower when they're younger and younger and younger onward, to have a vertical arm slot or to have a low release point and create this flat uh, angle on their fastballs with a lot of backspin, if that's all hitters see for their whole lives or for more of their pro careers or you know, elite amateur ball in college, if that's what they're constantly used to seeing, does that have a long-term impact as to whether or not that type of pitch works as well anymore? Because when you have you know guys throwing from all different kinds of arm slots with all different types of fastball shapes, uh, and then you have the Verlanders of the world ripping, you know, tough angled backspinning four seamers past you, it probably plays a little different than if everybody's trying to do that. So uh, I I wonder if there will be a biodiversity issue in this system soon. I think that some of what like the Rays have done, uh, what the Brewers have done, although that comes from Houston too, right? Uh, What they've done to create a whole bunch of different weird looks out of their bullpen throughout the course of the game That's the type of thing that I'd like to see Baltimore start to do. Obviously those type of pitchers aren't typically valued in the draft or in trade in the same type of way that a guy with like power playing stuff is. Uh, There's just much more confidence in that backspinning fastball, vertical action, breaking ball now than there has ever been and much more than there is compared to other types of pitchers. So uh, I think that, getting some of these weirdo sidearm type guys. I mean, Zach Lauthers is, is sort of that type of guy. Uh, but having those guys at scale, I think, uh, will be important. I think that some of the other teams who I think are good at this have started to branch out in that way where they're like, yeah, give me Eric Yardley, and I'll trade you a comp pick for Alex Claudio. And, you know, what's uh, what's another one? Zach Pop is, is one that is sort of let get away uh, in Baltimore. So it'll be – it, well, maybe – but um, I think he was supposed to pitch today. He might be throwing right now. That might be interesting to know how that looks right now. Um, given that when he was traded in that in the Manny Machado deal, it was all right. Well, if this guy stays healthy, then maybe he's Brandon League. You know, he's it's it's a turbo sinker guy uh, with a low slot. So yeah, I think that I'd like to see a little bit more diversification among the pitching prospects that they've they've tended toward. Yeah, that makes
3: sense. We we're, we're all pretty upset we got pop taken from us.
0: So. Yeah, I and you guys were on the, the other end of that. Doesn't it, it feels? It has to feel good to be on the other end of that, though, right? Like that you have True. enough depth that someone thinks, yeah, we'll take one of the Orioles guys in the Rule Five, and you're not taking Jose Mesa's kid and Nestor Cortez, and you know, like using like three Rule Five picks in a year on guys who don't stick.
3: Yeah, <laughs> it feels weird. Not used to that.
0: So I guess. Um, with your list
1: we shared your list as soon as it, it was put up on fan Graphs, and one of the first nice. comments that we got for it was it, why are there no samuel basalo michael hernandez two guys that the Orioles just signed in the international market was that just because timing that that market the, the deadline being pushed back a little bit and when the list came out or if so what, what are your thoughts on those two guys just kind of generally speaking since you know international prospects a lot of information is harder to come by
0: and we're sure, not yeah. used to that either yeah yeah right um <laughs> yeah so certainly some of the some of the Orioles guys I have seen in person, some of them I haven't uh, the way that I started to do things internationally is to focus on the very very top of that market and not try to go super duper deep obviously the the way a 15 year old 16 year old develops physically over the course of just a couple of months can be pretty explosive right you can really change physically as an athlete over the course of just seven eight months at that age guys have growth spurts or whatever you you give a kid a million bucks and he comes from an impoverished place and baseball teams haven't really been good at at helping guys understand what to do with all that money all of a sudden and how to uh, adapt to a new culture when they're coming here quickly so it's a very volatile place to try to you know rank talent um and so yeah like the Orioles guys, they're okay. We're talking about guys who are about, you know, seven figures, low seven figures types. And Hernandez is of that well-rounded projectable frame group who eight months from now you might go, hey, look at this guy. He's 6'2, 170. Now you're looking at, you know, at maturity, he's gonna be 6'3, 205, 210, maybe have two more grades worth of power, or he might always be slender, might be a lock to stay at shortstop. And your confidence in those two things might change over the course of a couple of months. So he's just in that developmental ball of clay, the actions that shortstop are good. Uh, and, you know, you just sort of see what happens that type of guy I'll put. If I have enough information on him, if I've seen him in person, which Hernandez, I actually may have at some point, I think he might've been it. I might have an old roster here that has him in Scottsdale. And I have notes that I didn't uh, like identify before the list went up, but um but yeah, like he's on the outside looking in for me right now, and some of that is just because of insufficient information uh, on you know on my behalf, basically. And who's the other the player is this the catcher, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: basalo, Samuel That's Basalo.
0: Right. Yeah, just don't have a whole lot on him. Um, yeah. I think that is he Venezuelan. I've had a real hard time, especially during the pandemic, getting any information on some of the Venezuelan players, like at all. Uh, Some of the countries in Latin America were super duper locked down for months and months at a time. Uh, And some of even the pro prospects who have been around for a while were stuck inside for several months and in a way that like has impacted their conditioning over the course of checking in with uh, the developmental personnel with the team over the course of pandemic. So, uh, so yeah, I've really struggled to get info on some of the Venezuelan guys. I actually think that for the, was it the first time this cycle that I had, I'm just looking now to see how many other Venezuelan guys are even on the list. So like Jesus Galiz and Wilman Diaz who signed with the Dodgers Galiz was supposed to sign with the Yankees. And then is one of those guys who um, was subject to some of the weird, unfortunate COVID circumstances, like, MLB wouldn't allow teams to trade bonus pool space anymore. And so the Yankees couldn't fit all of the guys in their signing pool because they had planned on training, trading for bonus pool space. And so they cut Galees loose. They had like a $2 million agreement with him, or maybe it was 1.2. Uh, but it, he ended up signing for 600 K with the Dodgers. Um, yeah. you know, I've got the Borgoia kid for next year, but I just don't have a whole lot on the Venezuelan kids.
3: Hmm. That'll be interesting it's- to follow. Um, so, Obviously, most prognosticators have Adley Rushman to be major league ready at some point this season, but do you think the Orioles will start the clock on him at all, considering they don't really intend to be competitive this year?
0: I don't know. That's a good question. I guess I don't really know. I think that if if some real repercussions, I would hope that they look at what happened with Chris Bryant and the Cubs – and also what happened with J.J. Watt and the Texans, because, I mean, Rutschman just kind of looks like J.J. a little bit, actually. <laughs> but he's also that type of guy, right? Like, Rutchman is Ruchman's the best college-hitting prospect I've scouted. And uh, he is bigly ready, certainly defensively. Do I think that you drop him into the lineup tomorrow and he'd be peak Adley Rutschman? No uh could you argue could you point to like mike zanino and joey bart as recent examples of why you should be more careful with him uh yes but i i would tend to look at the chris bryant situation and, and then look at adley rushman and say i want this guy to be a pillar of our organization for the next 10 years even if he's not great if something happens and he gets concussed over and over again or breaks his hand a bu- you know or whatever, right? Like catching you take a beating, even if that dilutes his offensive production and he ends up being closer to Weeders, just because of this guy's personality, like Brian Dawkins in Philly or uh, you know, just that type of guy who just won around and you want him to be on good terms with the org. And so I would be more inclined to to put this kid in in the big league sooner than later, even if it's suboptimal from uh, a, like, retention standpoint. Because honestly, dude, like, if you don't compete, if you don't compete during the life of Adley Rutschman's tenure in Baltimore, it doesn't matter that you have this extra year on the back end of his service time clock. Like, you're just going to get fired. So... (laughs) if you don't compete, you have like your five-year window or whatever it is, and maybe some of these new age of executives are good at, you know, they certainly are better at job security because so much of it is budgetary. Uh, but, but from a performance standpoint, like you just better be damn good b- long before that seventh year of team control can, can come to fruition, right? So I think there are a myriad of reasons, uh, both practical and ethical, that they should just maybe not an opening day or whatever. Certainly, I think Adley Rutschman is one of the best thirty catchers on the planet right now, bar none. You know, like he deserves to be a big league starter from from day one. If you want to take a look at what the hitting is like and and sort of ease him into big league stuff from a hitting standpoint, because you're scared of what happened with Zanino and you're scared of what it seems like it might happen with Joey Bart, and you want to slow play things rather than try to ask him to take that leap that some of these guys haven't been able to bridge uh, that I think that's justifiable. But at some point in 2021, I think he should be up.
2: Let me ask you this, just talking about Rutsman real quick. Um, I looked this up not long ago and it doesn't seem like there's much of a precedence for catchers getting a contract extension at the beginning of their career. Salvador Perez was one of the only examples I could find. Do you think that Rutsman could buck that trend and get an extension early on? Do you think that some of the Orioles aren't really going to entertain?
0: Yeah, that's another good question. I don't have any specific intel on any of this, so anything I say is is very speculative. Uh,
3: so it's a fact. Let's hear it.
0: <laughs> I think that he's certainly again, like, absolutely the kind of guy who I'd want to have around for a, a really long time. If you look at what the, the Braves have done with Albie's and Acuna, although some of that's on their agent, and what like Arizona has done with Ketel Marte, who's got a pretty you know, before he really exploded, he had an extension. Um, like I, I, don't know. And you know, Longoria and with the Rays, I think that there's there are reasons to explore it. Certainly, I think that it's more, if I'm lining up the risk, uh, than someone like Longoria or Marte is less likely to. The, like the spectrum of risk goes from uh, DH, where you're just hitting every day to a pitcher where you might break it any moment, right? Like if you're the, if it we're, if we were talking about Casey Mize, I go, no, 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 thank you. No extension. Uh, but for this guy, he's somewhere on that spectrum t- closer towards the middle, just because it's not like he's playing third base or whatever, where he's just a position player and is less likely to get hurt than a pitcher, but he is a catcher. And again, they just absolutely take a beating back there, their thighs and their, their knees and their hamstrings and their forearms. Like they just get bludgeoned with baseballs. And it wouldn't surprise me if over the course of these first six or seven years that he has with the team, that he spends a bunch of time on the, on the injured list at some point, just because that's what happens. Um, and so maybe if a team is really taking a pragmatic look at that, they would say, yeah, that kind of scares me. But, um, but having him in place at a reasonable number also means that you can reallocate some of that budget that ownership is allowing you to use to other pieces. And then, so, but you know, that could be said of just leaving him on his rookie deal too. Uh, so yeah, I think if you can buy out a couple of years of free agency, that's essentially what you're predicting then, right? Is when he's a free agent, do we still want to be in, are we confident enough to be in and, uh, as far as Rutschman as a talent and a person goes, I would be. And then it's just about understanding the risk of, of catchers. And then really the, the way to answer the question then on our own would be to go, all right, how many catchers are good from age 24 and then in perpetuity? Uh, and I, I would guess that that's, that number is pretty low.
3: Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, Moving way down the list, uh, Dan Zimborski's (laughs) Zips predicts Kevin Smith to have the highest war amongst pitchers in the organization for 2021. And yet he's all the way down at 35 on your list. Can both of these things be true at the same time?
0: No, (laughs) no. (laughs) One of us will be correct. This is where, uh, and Smith is an interesting player and maybe he's, he's a good example of, Hey, you know, You said you wanted different looks mixed in. Uh, Here's a guy who does that, right? It's a lower slot guy uh, who is in that Josh fleming raise sort of mold. And the thing that Zips can't capture that I can is how mightily Kevin Smith struggled to get that breaking ball to his glove side at the alt site, right? Like that's one thing that I know and can factor into what the way I'm thinking about this, that zips just cannot because it's looking at performance. Um, And so, yeah, there's definitely, there are definitely people who love Kevin Smith. You can see how the way his stuff works, which is like this, (laughs) like teams like that now. And especially if the movement on your fastball tailing and your slider sweeping has a huge, huge difference. It seems to be a thing that some teams are growing interested in. And I bet Kevin Smith is on that list, but you still have to execute that back foot breaking ball to righties and that glove side, chase it, breaking ball to lefties. If you're Kevin Smith and he did not do that at the outside, definitely did not. Um, and so uh, that's why I slid him down to where he was. And I bet zips, Loves him because of how he's performed, which I'm going to look up right now. Um, so there are two, a couple of Kevin Smiths. All right, so there's one Pretty with the a Jays. <laughs> right, so yeah, I mean, if you're looking at it, 10 Ks per nine in 18 at low A. I guess that would be rookie ball. That's that's the New York Penn League. 23 innings, uh, a, an 076 ERA, a 243 FIP. He had a 263 FIP at high A the next year, over 17 starts over 17 starts uh, and and absolutely carved at double A over six starts. Well, no, he did not. Act, he was fine. Eight per nine. There's a, they pushed him. And then over the course of six starts at double A, it took a little bit of a, of a dip. And then let's see the data I have from 19 on him is this is, I'm just going to look up some fastball data that I sourced from back in 2019. That is still relevant just because there wasn't a 2020 and Kevin Smith, 87 to 90, touching 92 with a lot of spin for someone who throws only that hard. Okay, about 2450 RPMs on average. It's a very low slot and axis, so you're going to get a lot of tail and sink on a fastball like this. Uh, And he does have quite a bit of both. Actually, not as much sink as you'd think. It it has really a a little bit of uh, vertical carry and a lot of tail. Only a 10% swinging strike rate on that fastball, so that's about average. And again, that's at like high A and double A. Uh, So you know, well below average velocity, but average swinging strike rate on that fastball. So it's definitely pretty interesting. But as far as him like being the top guy in the in the org, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But um, but that's interesting though, right? Like that's a thing that had I known that before you said that then maybe he's not 35th on the list. And maybe I go, oh, so if Zips thinks his performance is at this level, maybe I should adjust this a little bit.
2: So two players that we have talked about a lot recently because they were acquired over the offseason are Garrett Stallings and Zamiah Jones. Both came over from the Angels. We kind of took the contrarian view at the time in liking the Iglesias trade and liking that return. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on Stallings. And then, Jones, should we hear a lot about his swing being tinkered with? Um, and he's so far gotten off to a good start in camp. What kind of player do you see him being?
0: Yeah, again, I think um, especially Stallings, you're looking at a foundation of pitchability that you're hoping to apply dev to Because the thing that teams just seem to be able to do most consistently now from a developmental perspective is tease out that velocity. That's just the thing that they can do now. Driveline's not famous for making guys throw strikes. You know, they tease out velo. Uh, And so I like Stallings quite a bit. Until you see the velo, you can't go, you know, on a prospect list. You can't just anticipate it, right? Because, all right, well, now he's an Oriole, so up he goes. Um, but there is the possibility of that. And then Jamai, yeah, his swing has been goofed with a lot. Like it's just been the case for a lot of the angels prospects over the last couple of years. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it. Not that I'm a, not that I'm anti swing change or that I don't think that some of the data driven reasons to try to change someone's swing are valid, But I think that a lot of the players, this is a situation where there was not discussion. Uh, There doesn't seem to be cohesion between the, at least not logical cohesion in my mind, between the scouting staff and the dev staff. Because I love the players the Angels have drafted. I love Jordan Adams. I love Jemai Jones. I love Brandon Marsh and Kyron Paris and Trent DeVoe. Like I, I, I really like the athletes that the Angels have put into their system over the last handful of years, but a lot of them, and some of them explicitly so, are raw two-sport athletes. Like Joe Adele is just still very raw, and Marsh was an all-state wide receiver, and Jordan Adams wasn't even going to be a baseball player uh, until NHSI, where he looked great, and then suddenly it was like, how much, how much would we pay this guy uh, to not play North Carolina wide receiver? And so Jemai is like this, where rather than just let him learn how to play baseball for a while, his swing has changed and his swing has changed and then his swing has changed. And so all of these raw athletes that the Angels have had, to me, look like they're in the box thinking, all right, so I got to swing like this now, rather than just like, all right, there's a guy on second, nobody's out. I really just need to put a ball in play here. Like, I just need to put a ball in play here to move this runner over in this situation and I'll, you know, like I'm going to shorten up with two strikes. Like they're just not learning how to play intuitive baseball. Baseball is just such a complex game that, uh, that they should, in my opinion, just worry about that for a while. And then if they're not succeeding for one reason or another, once that, that foundation has been laid and they're at double A or whatever, then change their swing because then the other stuff has, is already baked in. They don't have to worry about, they're comfortable in the baseball playing environment and now change their swing. um, rather than the other way around. Like, I just don't want Jordan Adams to get the double-A and then be taught situational baseball. Uh, so uh, I think Jamai is in that bucket where they found something that worked with him mm-hmm. towards the end. 2019 Fall League, I thought that it was the right fit. They simplified things uh, and let just his natural feel for contact rule, right? This is a guy who looked like a six-bat almost instantaneously in the AZL after he was drafted, went from looking like a raw high schooler to, hey, this is a guy who's got a six bat. Uh, And then the swing changed a lot to try to coax more power out of that, and that kind of went away. And so now it's very simple with the front foot. uh, Just guide the bat head to the ball. Let your natural strength and bat speed sort of dictate how much power comes. And I think it's going to be a lot of doubles power, a lot of contact. His approach has been mixed in the past, so maybe it's on the lower end of OBP. But I think you're looking at above average pop for a middle infielder. Although he's probably the type of guy who you don't want on the field late in games, like he's not a very good defensive second baseman. He'll make some effort and athleticism based plays, but from uh, and he's he's gotten a lot better around the bag, but his hands are still not uh, very good. So, um, yeah, I think he's going to be a flawed player, but definitely a core role player. The, the type of guy who who and, and Orioles fans will love him. Like he's such a wonderful kid who plays really hard and is a lot of fun to watch.
2: So we get a lot of feedback from our fans about prospect fatigue sometimes. And one of the guys that it really surrounds is Ryan McKenna. And I was surprised to see him seventh on your list. And your report on him was pretty positive. So what sort of background do you have on McKenna that makes you think that he's you know going to be a guy who could really click?
0: Yeah, so I've got McKenna in the 45 future value tier. And I think he's a relatively lower variance guy. So that to me, that's a a good role player. So like that's Manny Margot, that's Freddie Galvis, you know, the one and a half ish war type guys uh, who play an integral part on your team, play a bunch of different pos- uh, defensive positions, but aren't necessarily a clean everyday player uh, the way I think, you know, like Ryan Mountcastle is going to be or whatever. So um, yeah, McKenna, he's got sneaky pop to right, right center. There's something about the way his swing works that really lets him pepper that opposite field gap. And I think then his speed takes over. And so this is a guy who I think is going to have, even though he's not going to have like crazy high exit velos, I think he's going to hit for some sneaky doubles and triples power just because of how fast he is and sort of the way his swing puts balls into play. And then the speed and the defensive component, uh, I think are going to be a valuable piece of that too. So uh, I have him, as a version of the fourth outfielder. Uh, there are a couple different versions of that. There might be a better way of describing it. You know, like Matt Joyce and Seth Smith are the, Hey, I hit left-handed and I have power version of this, where they're going to have to sit some of the time. Josh Reddick's in that bucket too, where like, they have to sit some of the time against some of these tough lefties. And so they're not like obvious. So meet the definition of an everyday player but they play a ton because most of the pitching population is right-handed. And so they're going to like be in the middle of your lineup a lot of the time. And McKenna is the inverse of that, where he's right-handed, but he can really fly and play center field. There's going to be some sneaky power there too. Uh, So he'll probably sit sometimes against, you know, right-handed pitchers, or if you got a sinker baller on the hill that day, then you don't need the seven runner in the outfield that day. So you can, you know, have someone who is more offense forward playing an outfield position that day uh, rather than McKenna. And so he's also not the definition of an everyday guy, but he's something close to it. He's definitely an integral role player type. And that's how I define that, uh, that lower variance, 45 future value type of guy. That's that's the role uh, that that type of guy plays.
3: And another guy along those lines, I think a little bit lower on the list is Caden Grenier who I think Orioles fans have just forgotten exists, but he's still hanging in there around the 20s on your
0: list. Yeah. um, Yeah, Grenier is another one where how much – and the highest profile version of this was Mackenzie Gore, right, where you go, all right, so how much do I read into the team's handling of them during this time? Uh, So he wasn't a guy who was like invited to the outsider instructor or anything, right? So what does that say about the – org? and their opinion of him, like you're sort of making an inference there. And I think that it's logical to do that, uh, but you don't really know. Grenier is really interesting. I saw him in high school. He went to uh Vegas area high school. Um, I think he went to Bishop Gorman and yeah, had was clearly tooled up, you know, had some power could really run could play shortstop. And then playing at Oregon state is very seductive, right? And he's good enough defensively that, Nick Madrigal, who doesn't have the the left side arm strength in a vacuum, but can could sure as hell play college shortstop. You know, Madrigal moved from shortstop to second base at Oregon State because of Grenier, uh, and then his Grenier swing is just weird, uh, and it doesn't really work. And there's definitely power there, and if you can get him to swing at the right stuff to the point where he's making contact and only swinging at stuff where he can you know impact it with power you know, has approached in that way, then maybe it works in some kind of way. Um, but yeah, there's going to be a lot of strikeouts there. Maybe, maybe too many strikeouts.
1: Yeah. Um, another guy, that I think a lot of Orioles fans are excited to watch when we finally get the opportunity to watch minor league baseball again is uh Taron Vavra, who you had pretty high on your list. Uh, three of us all love the guy. Uh, his numbers are just kind of off the charts in small sample size, of course, but you have his ETA at 2022, despite that lack of real high level experience, Uh, What makes him a fast riser in your eyes and why should Orioles fans be excited uh, about what Vavra brings to the organization?
0: Yeah. Most of my ETAs are just derived from the 40 man timeline. So that rule five draft timeline comes up in November and then uh, early December. And then the next year is almost always when I just have their, their ETA. Um, But yeah, Vavra Vavra is the type of player who I am just more likely in a heuristic way be in on i love these lefty excuse me these lefty hitting multi-positional infielders with feel for contact i just think that that feel for contact is the most important thing and uh that if you're a lefty stick who can play all over the infield then you're very very likely to play some sort of uh big league role and even if it takes a little bit of time for it to develop even if you don't have a whole lot of power you end up in the doing like the eric Sogard thing you know where there are some some years where you are running maybe a little bit higher of a BABIP than uh, you should be, and you're hitting like 315 or something like that. So uh, Vavra is a really athletic lefty stick, His second base for me. Uh, is, I think he'll probably play some third base too. Not really a shortstop, but maybe in an emergencies type situation. But, um, but yeah, I think that those guys who can who can hit – uh, are the types of guys who I'm going to bet on. And all the college players in his position are sort of behind the developmental eight ball. They're the types of guys who probably would have been tested at double A uh, at some point during 2020. And then thinking about them as being a year away wouldn't feel far, you know, like like a branch too far or whatever. You know, it would, it would feel more correct. Uh, but a lot of these college hitters from the last two drafts, well, well, 19 especially, and 18 – but especially the 2019 college guys who you know, come out and they're going to be 23 this year, and a lot of them haven't played above A ball. Yeah. Just because we missed the, the 2020 season, I think a lot of those guys would have, would have run it up to high A, double A. All
3: right. So should I ask for a refund on the Eusniel Diaz jersey I just ordered, or does he still have a chance <laughs> to make his mark as the centerpiece in the Manny Machado trade? He's
0: hard, like –
1: This is probably the most discussed point of your list, I think, among Orioles. Yeah,
0: Yeah, he's one where ultimately, I felt it came time to to make a call on what he was going to be, and I just took the under. Like, there are definitely things about him I've seen him do, and I've been watching this guy for a long time, right? Like, I'm just here in Arizona, so I saw a ton of him with LA before he got traded. And he was really, really performing for his age at every level, basically the whole time until like 2019 a little bit, right? Um, There's, again, something about the way his swing works that I think has limited utility throughout the zone where he can get beat. And there's less margin for error for a guy like that who's going to play a corner outfield spot than for someone who can actually play center field. So if you told me that he and McKenna, albeit for different reasons, right? Like Diaz has a, has more raw juice than McKenna does. But if you told me that they were going to produce like roughly similar stats, even though it was happening in different ways, right? McKenna's gap power and then run like hell. And, oh, look, I've got 30 doubles. And Diaz is, oh, I have actual power. Here are my 30 doubles. And then McKenna can actually play center field and Diaz cannot. And DS has been hurt a bunch too, and that also caused me to round down a little bit. But you can see how there's, there's – if you're looking at it this way, which is the way I looked at it, that there should be some daylight between those two guys. Uh, and then the injury stuff really caused me to round down on Yusniel, uh even more than towards the end. But uh, there are people in baseball who just think he's a 50, that you mentioned prospect fatigue before, that they just think the way that this guy performed at his level – he feels like a pretty safe everyday corner outfielder to, to me. And there are people in baseball who feel that way. And, and I'm just not, I'm just not one of them.
3: And um, i go ahead, Nick.
0: No, go
1: ahead.
3: I was going to say for some reason, Keegan Aiken isn't on the list and perhaps he's not considered eligible, but for the sake of argument, where would he fit in if he was, and do you think he
0: can stick in the rotation? Yeah, I do. Um, so I, I did go back and count his service time days and I guess I came up with 43 days on the second count. At one point, I must have counted more than 45. He is on the board, has a, a tab for everybody who graduated rookie status in, um, in 2020. So if people go to Fangraphs and find the board uh, and click on the far right tab, the seasonal tab, there's a drop down in there that just says 2020 graduates. And Keegan Aiken is on there. Uh, and, and all the Orioles prospects who graduated – Austin Hayes was the only other one, um, in 2020 are on that, uh, that list. And yeah, I've got e Aiken again as a 45 had renewed confidence in him being able to consistently backfoot that breaking ball to right-handed hitters based on what I saw in 2020 it was always a velo and change up lefty for me as an amateur. And then as a prospect and then watching him in the big leagues, uh, I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, this guy's breaking ball utility is better than I thought. And so I slid him up into that, uh, into that 45 future value tier. I know he got touched up a little bit today, and I know he's had a hard time throwing strikes uh in general so far this spring, but you know, he's a he's a husky boy. So sometimes it takes a little bit of time for those guys to come into camp and shake off the offseason rust. Uh so I, I'd be okay with that. I, I still just love his left-handed stuff and think he's gonna be a core part of any kind of pitching staff that, that you guys have moving forward. Uh, but yeah, he'd be in that future that 45 future value tier. Uh on the Orioles list, somewhere in that mix with like Kramer and, um, and who's the other one I have in, the, in that mix?
3: Uh, is it uh, like
0: Bauman, yeah. And then you're just kind of picking your who who do you like, you know? Uh, Bauman's sort of been hurt, but has the best pure stuff of those three guys. Kramer's the most stable of the group. Uh, and Aiken is the one who had, you know, 2020 success, and, and maybe that makes you feel a little more confident in him. It's sort of, you know, take your pick of that group.
3: Cool. Nice.
1: So two, two righties on the flip side of that, further down your list that really struggled in 2019, last time we saw them, uh, but Blaine Knight and Brendan Hannafee. Uh, Knights strikeout numbers, just not there. Walks were through the roof. Really bad year in Frederick. Same thing with Hannafee, You know, not a strikeout guy, uh, but the walks were up. Uh, he really struggled in Frederick as well. We've talked about before on a previous episode how uh, we see a lot of Orioles pitchers kind of struggle a little bit when they get to Frederick, but guys like Alex Wells, when they got to Bowie, he really turned things around uh, compared to that year in Frederick. Uh, do you see any hope with either Knight or Hanafy turning things around in, in 2021?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's one of those... That's one of those sneaky things that, like, uh, the the people focused on a sole team know about the developmental trajectory of their guys. That you know, it kind of eludes most of us um, doing the the national thing, right? It's a very very specific thing. Uh, so I'm glad to have learned that. But uh, but yeah, like the Hannafy thing is tough. There wasn't a whole lot of support to even keep him on the list at all. I know there that you're betting on frame, arm strength, athleticism, right? And see what happens from there. I'm inclined to do that continuously. Um, and so, but that's that's still where things are with Hanfie and that's where they've been for kind of a while now. Uh, so starting to lose some optimism there, uh, but obviously he's still around on the list. And then Knight is another interesting one because there was a year when he was draft eligible and then just didn't get picked because the stuff was up and down. He really can only pitch it in out of the bullpen for me. Part of the problem with him in Arkansas was that he wouldn't hold his stuff deep into games, and he sure wouldn't hold his command deep into games. So I like him more as a as a middle inning, like really let it rip at you know ninety three to ninety six with a plus slider type guy. Uh, and I think that if they make that type of move, that maybe you'll see him shoot up. But it doesn't necessarily make sense to do that just to get him to start performing. At some point, you still want to say give this guy as many reps as he can try every, you know, every bit as much as he can to, to make him be a starter. Um, And you want to try to refine, if you can find a third pitch in there, then you want to try to do that. And so letting a guy start and giving him four or five innings to do that uh, is, is much more, you're much more likely for him to, to do something unexpected and develop than if you're like, look, we just think you're a reliever. So just do that. Uh, so I get how they've handled him, but ultimately I think that the role there is is probably an up-down relief type guy, like a you know an option-year reliever.
2: Yes. I'll point uh, our listeners to your report on Hanafy because I love this line in your report. His delivery is odd. After his hands break, Hanafy holds the ball <laughs> out and up above his head like a waiter carrying a tray. Then his stride <laughs> and arm stroke are both very
0: short. I love the way you wrote that, Eric. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're trying to uh, – I don't know. I write up like 2,000 guys every year, so <laughs> trying to do some stuff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I will note, I, I've watched Hanafi. I live in the same town as him. Uh, listeners of our show know he's my guy. Uh, he's been working out here in town all summer. I will say there was a slight VLO uptick according to recent cool. uh, info and a lot of work on that secondaries. So hopefully, hopefully there's good. something there with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see guys like that develop, and um, you know, you identify a guy like this when we did sort of as a as a prospect writing populist, right? Basically, he goes to uh, to Aberdeen in 2017 and has a 2.70 ERA, and then I think he performed really well the next year, and just wasn't striking anybody out. And at that point, you're like, all right, look, this guy definitely has components, and it's just about making some of the the secondary stuff work and it just hasn't. And it just matters more as you get to the upper levels.
2: Yeah. Going over the hitters for a moment. Um, there's been a lot of talk this spring about Tyler Nevin's swing and how the Orioles are working with him. And it seems like the goal is to try to get a little bit more power production out of him. Do you think they're ultimately going to be able to do what the Rockies couldn't and get more power out of Tyler Nevin?
0: I think maybe i did hear a story from someone with the org while i was putting the list together that was to the effect said that the rockies wanted him to use the whole field in a way that they almost discouraged him from pulling the baseball during bp and you know during live work and stuff like that like it wasn't a thing that they encouraged him to do and and were actually actively discouraging him from doing so uh you know, as far as the, the philosophical piece of this that I am not sure about yet is do you want people to, to pull the baseball all the time? I know sometimes that you've got like, look, your exit velocities are way better when you pull the ball, but if you start guys doing that from day one, then you're missing out on some of the great natural hitters like Miguel Cabrera. Like you would never want Miguel to tell Miguel Cabrera, Hey dude, just pull it all the time. Right? Like, that part of the reason that guy developed into one of the best hitters of the last 20 years is because he was groomed to like do this all fields thing and then developed through physical growth, the power to do damage everywhere. And he became an elite hitter because of that. And I don't think I'd want to, to, to prevent, I'd be worried that, that encouraging people to pull the ball more often from day one uh, might, you know, you might miss a guy like that. Because you you don't allow him to develop into that, and that's not the case with Nevin, right? Like he's older, so uh, I think it's possible, right? Based on what we know about what seemed not to be happening in Colorado, um, that yeah, that yeah, if he can if he can pull the ball some more situationally, then uh, then absolutely, maybe there's more more juice in there, and I think he's going to need it because he's probably going to play a lot of first base. Side note: What the hell are the Rockies doing? (laughs) right yeah um it's funny that you mentioned that because somebody with the denver post is supposed to call me tomorrow to talk about exactly that um i don't know i don't know but uh from my perspective that org is strange just because you know i'm on the backfields a lot and when you have kids who have the same number and your rosters that are on posted on your backfields aren't always updated and the names are in the back of the jerseys and it's hard to get schedules and like probable pitchers out of out of people on your staff like it really makes my job hard and so uh and the job of the scouts here hump in the backfields as well who cover the Rockies they don't want to be blindsided i asked the guy who covered the Rockies all last week i was like hey do they have a b game coming up here this week and he was like oh i really don't know and then they did <laughs> <laughs> like i would have liked to have been there but um but it just wasn't a thing that that was known so it was just a thing that some of the diamondbacks beat writers stumbled on and were like hey there's a B game going on in the Rockies backfield and i was like oh shit i should have been there <laughs> but um but uh but yeah like that's it's a weird org some of the stuff they do i think is really great and some of the stuff that they do is like not good um and yeah it's it's weird i don't know what to really think about them right now but i should figure that out before tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another
1: outfielder that I'm interested in, he's a guy that I was excited to watch 2019, but you know, having a newborn right after short season ball started, not a lot of time to get out to, no, congrats though. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and yeah, the Aberdeen camera is like, kind of like somebody that has a drone over top of the field. So you have no idea what's really happening, uh, on those games, but Kyle Stowers, uh, you have a pretty high among outfielders in this organization. I think he gets overlooked just because Orioles have a pretty solid group of outfielders right now at the major league level. Mountcastle Hayes, the resurgence of Mullins. We'll see what happens there. But uh, Santander, and then you have Kersan and Diaz, but you have Kyle Stowers right behind them. I mean, other than his just extreme raw power,
0: uh, what is there to like about Stowers, what he brings? I just love how crazy athletic his swing is. (laughs) Like he's just got – his swing is so athletic Um, and – So to see that, especially to see that on a college field, uh, was different. Uh, And so, yeah, I'm in on that. That's basically it. (laughs) He just has, when you watch Cody Bellinger swing, when you watch uh, like anyone who has that explosive rotational ability where they're taking that giant stride, it just takes a rare sort of athlete to be able to do that. And there's maybe not the elite, like, rotational speed, like the bat speed isn't as goofy as someone like Bellinger or like Acuna or Javi Baez or some of these other guys who have these really rotational swings. Um, But but the fact that he can keep a swing like that relatively under control, uh, and I just love guys with that really long stride. I like guys who can adjust the – they're really adjusting, like, the depth of their barrel – by adjusting the length of their swings or the length of their stride. So, you know, the longer stride you take, the lower your barrel is going to traverse the zone. And so some of those guys, I think Stowers can do this, you know, can can adjust their swing in that way sort of mid uh, stride. Um, and so, yeah, I just I think he's a lefty bat who's going to hit for a ton of power. There are going to be some strikeouts, but, um, but yeah, he's in that bucket too where it's like there's more variance there So I think there's a little bit more ceiling and maybe he is just eventually like a true everyday player. I think the talent for that is there, but uh, he's also in that like 45 bucket where, you know, it's that Seth Smith, Matt Joyce type of thing. Like, yeah, that's pretty reasonable to expect this guy to come up mash right-handed pitching, which just makes up most of the pitching population and play, you know, a two thirds of a platoon sort of situation. even Jock Peterson is like the high-end version of this, right, where Mm -hmm. he's not really playing against lefties, but still is hitting like 25 bombs a year just because he has so much power and is put in the right positions to succeed.
2: Focusing for a minute on two guys that have gotten a lot of hype um, really since last fall, and that's Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson. Um, There's a lot of focus on the bats with those guys, but do you see either one of them sticking at shortstop?
0: No, um, I'm still kind of stingy in the way I think about shortstops, right? Uh, but if it were my ball club, like Paul DeYoung wouldn't play shortstop for me, but he's played shortstop. So, uh, Westberg, if you're going to pick a guy, it's probably Westberg who has the better chance of the two to stay there. But no, I don't think so. I think, um, Henderson, I bet could be a, a, a very good defensive third baseman. I'm, I'm more inclined to think that Westberg ends up playing second base left field, but he's the one of the two who if I'm gonna bet on a guy to stick there and be a four defender, then it's probably him.
3: Do you think the Orioles have enough depth behind Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall to fill out a rotation on a contending team or do you think they'll eventually need to acquire at least a mid rotation starter outside of the organization?
0: I think that I think that Grayson is going to be a real dude. His delivery still kind of scares me uh, just because of how long the arm action is. And Hall is this way too. At least the last I saw him, his arm action was pretty long. And so Hall, I think, will either be in that five and dive role where he's like Blake Snell where he throws like five innings and that's kind of it Um, just because he doesn't work efficiently enough. And so, yeah, I, I think that pitching depth in general is a huge, huge part of having a contending roster. And that there's always attrition. So you can love, I mean, like, like look at Lucas Giolito's career was like, wow, look at this guy. He's one of the best prospects in baseball. And then he sucked and now he's great again because they shortened his arm action. Uh, and so there are going to be, there's going to be some of this with all of the guys that they have in the system. And some of them are just going to fall away the way some of those Royals prospects uh, kind of fell away. Um, you, you know, they won a world series anyway, but a bunch of those guys just didn't really pan out. So um, there's always going to be attrition on the pitching side, which makes the depth piece important. And so, yes, I absolutely think that they're going to need way, 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 way more guys than just Grayson and DL hall. Uh, I think that you're, you're hoping that one or two of Aiken, Bauman, uh, Kramer stick as your fourth starter type of guy. You're hoping that, one of Isaac Matson and peak and Brnovich and uh, Bradish British uh, workout. You're hoping that one of like Alex Wells has some sneaky Kyle Hendricks stuff going on, like, or Dallas Keuchel, right. And you're rebuilding heavy. And this guy can eat innings. And maybe by giving him the opportunity to, to do that, you run into a guy who can, uh, who can play that sort of long-term role and totally exceed your expectations. You have so many opportunities to give guys the chance to do that because of the rebuild. So, um, so yeah, depth is going to be hugely, hugely important. And some of them will just, you know, be born of refining themselves at the big league level through sheer opportunity. Um, And I I would guess that three, three or four of the prospects in the system are part of the, uh, the next competitive Orioles, big league rotation. um, And that, you know, two of them, uh, just for the sake of depth, probably are not one of those two is probably like a big a big name guy like a go get Darvish or go get Musgrove or go get Lance Lynn type of guy who the, who the org is going to have to uh, consolidate prospects to trade for.
3: All right, and more on the pitching side, uh, I saw there was no mention of Adam Stauffer or any of the arms from the 2019 draft class for the that the Orioles actually selected. In the other prospects of note are. They not of note, or is it just there's not enough to go off of since you know 2020
0: was missed? Yeah, you could include you know staffers like stoffers like 9094, um, with some again, some backspin. Uh so yeah, like typically for me, the guys who end up on the the back end of the list or the the prospects who get drafted after round three, basically, typically do not end up on the list. Uh, and maybe they're in the honorable mention section and are more likely to be if I've seen them in person at, at any point, which is just like not the case with a lot of the Orioles guys. Um, so yeah, like certainly again, the Orioles seem very very interested in all of these underlying traits. You know, flat angled backspinning fastballs, and then they just apply dev to all of them, and then some of them will spike and some of them will not. And so, yes, yeah, Stoffer's absolutely in that group of guys who there's, you know, fringy arm strength here, but again, you can make velocity seemingly as as consistently as you can do anything else with pitchers and their development now. You can actually make them throw harder. Like We just have programs in place now where that actually happens and it didn't used to. Uh, so maybe finding all these underlying traits is really the way to go and then get them to throw harder. And he is also just sort of in that bucket. Cool.
1: So I guess we're kind of close up here with looking at the draft. Uh, enjoy your work on the draft prospect side of things too. Uh, you know, this year has kind of been the first year that I've enjoyed really diving into to just watch as much college baseball as possible. And it's been awesome to see a lot of these non-conference games. But conference play is getting ready to ramp up here in a few weeks. Uh, who should Orioles fans pay attention to uh, as college baseball really gets underway here at, at pick number five? Who are some
0: guys that you really like that stand out that – could be in an Orioles uniform in a few years. So the things that that Orioles fans want to keep in mind is how the team behaved in last year's draft. So Mm -hmm. while it's even if you pick two or three, the answer is not to just pay attention to the Vanderbilt arms or Matt McClain and that's it, you know, or know who Jordan Lawler is. The answer is to think about the groups of players, like think about the over slot prep arms who might be in the third round and stuff like that. So there's, there's a wide swath of players that Orioles fans should be caring about here. If I'm going to give Orioles fans a couple of teams to watch, uh, you should be watching Mississippi state who has three pitchers, Eric Sarantola, uh, Christian McLeod. You've got Will Bednar there. You've got uh, Logan Tanner, the catcher, Logan Allen. No Tanner Allen. They have, there are, there's a Tanner Allen and a Logan Allen and a Logan Tanner. Uh there are a bunch of Logan Allens, But anyway, the Mississippi State's got a catcher for two years from now. Like Mississippi State's just loaded. Watch Mississippi State. Um, and any of those guys, especially in the comp round and stuff, right? Do you guys have a sandwich round pick this year?
2: I What's will look that round? up real quick. <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, if you look at what they did last year, right? They diversified. They cut a deal with a high probability college bat with their first pick with Kerstad, which is sort of what the Cubs did with Kyle Schwarber, right? And then the Cubs got Dylan Cease and a couple other high school arms you don't know about, but they got a bunch of other uh, like million-dollar high school arms, Justin Steele and Carson Sands and stuff, and then one of them hit Cease. And they got Schwarber, and they were able to do that with the other guys because they cut with Schwarber. So I would look for Baltimore to do that, so know about that whole fat middle of the top ten. Right. If Baltimore looks at all those guys and sees roughly the same player, then they're probably going to draft the guy who's going to take the lowest bonus. And so then the thing to pay attention to in the mock drafts is which of that type of guy is projected in the mock drafts that you trust and closer to the date. Like, don't go looking at mock drafts now. They're just clickbait now. Wait until late April or May. And maybe not even then, right now, because remember, the draft isn't until July this year. Right. So, but like with Dodd of all those names that were likely to go in that top 10 mix on the mock drafts, he's the one who didn't have a home until 12 or 14 or whatever in a lot of the rumors. And so that's the one who he has incentive to take the biggest cut of the, of that bonus slot, because it's still more than he'd make go in 10 or 12 or wherever he was next likely to go. But it's not that way for the guy who's going to go sixth or seventh. Like, He'll only take a slot at six or seven where he's likely to go. Uh, so pay attention to that stuff. And then who are some of the other college teams that, yeah, no comp round pick for you guys this year, huh? So you pick at five and then at 41. Uh, then like the other ones so watch, watch Ty Madden at Texas. If you can, Texas is kind of tough to watch because they're on that longhorn network that like nobody yeah. has. Uh, so that's a really tough one. Uh, but Ty Madden is an interesting one. Uh, to watch who are some of the other teams that are going to be interesting here. At Louisville, Henry Davis at Louisville, a catcher with huge, huge power. Boston College has two guys you're gonna to want to watch too. Sal Frelick, the center fielder. I really, really like him. And uh, Cody Morissette, or I've heard it pronounced Marisset as well. Um, who had a slow start and then was three for four with two bombs the other day. Those are the uh the colleges with a lot of the first round hitters, <clears throat> and some of the other first round hitters we don't even really know about yet. They're just breaking out now because they didn't have their 2020 sophomore year to set that foundation of performance the way Rutschman did. Go look at Rutschman's freshman year. His statistics are not good. He laid the foundation to be one, one as a sophomore. And then he came out and was the best guy already. And then reinforced it his whole junior year. We don't have a foundation of a sophomore year for anybody right now, because we only had those four weeks. And so, and, you know, we had fall practice and stuff like that, too. But it's not a thing that you can go, hey, look at Wes Clark at South Carolina, who's slugging 1,200 or something right now, which he is. Uh, and actually, as I split here, I'm going to go watch South Carolina versus the Citadel. But, um, but, but, yeah, like, so there's a whole group of guys who we don't even really know about yet. They're just starting to break out. That's not someone who I think they take at five. But clearly, they, took, they gave a million to Servideo, who was a version of this last year, right? He didn't really play a whole lot at Ole Miss because there were other guys in front of him. And then he comes out, plays shortstop, looks good, and he raked for a month before the shutdown. And so uh, clearly the Orioles are paying attention to and willing to buy into some of these types of guys. And so now is the time for Orioles fans to, boy, I really wish there was like a leaderboard of college statistics that would sure would be nice if Fangraphs had that uh if you're watching this, like, let's go. But um, and like D one baseball.com has a leaderboard, but it's not like the Fangraphs leaderboards where we'd calculate the walk rate and the ISO for you and all that stuff. Like you have to yep. do all that stuff by hand, which I have and it's a pain. Um, but so yeah, there are all sorts of guys who haven't broken out yet.
2: Well, so, Eric, thank you so much for joining us that we really appreciate. It. Can you tell our listeners where they can uh, check out your work and what's coming up at Fangraphs?
0: So, yeah, so I'm still cranking out team lists. Um, now that Kevin is around, uh, Hopefully that will go a little bit more quickly here towards the very end. So check out my team list at the site if you're interested in prospects beyond just the Orioles. Uh, we'll have draft content as well. Kevin and I see a bunch of players and, and then watch a bunch of TV over the weekend uh, and write up notes. And so that comes out typically about once a week. So that's what our re- our regular draft coverage looks like right now. And then I wrote a book last year called Future Value that you know if you're listening to me talk and you think, eh, this guy seems like he's not an idiot – uh, you might like the book because it really goes into a lot of how over the course of being in baseball for the last, this was my, this will be my 13th season in baseball, 14th, 13th or 14th season in baseball. Um, I was a, an intern for the Phillies triple a affiliate when I was 18 or 19 and I've um, been in the game in some capacity since then. And it's Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. And I wrote this book together where we just sort of dump all of the best practices, stuff that we, have learned and thought about uh, during our time doing this, it's all in future value. And it does sort of predict the thing that has already started to happen at an accelerated rate where scouting shifts to this video data thing. and looks very, very different than it did even just five years ago. Uh, and is not super great for scouts from a labor perspective. And all that stuff is sort of baked into uh, future value, which people can, you know, find on Amazon or whatever. I think there's a paperback that'll come out later this year, so I assume the book is done okay. Um, and then, yeah, so that, that those are the things that um, that if I get to plug, then then I would. And I, I thank you guys for having me on. I know that you, it's a fledgling podcast, so uh, good luck to you guys. And, and I appreciate you thinking highly enough of the work to have me on.
3: Absolutely, yeah. we can't thank you enough for giving us so much time.
0: Yeah. See you guys.
2: You. Thank you so much, Eric. And uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verds. Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the latest Orioles, Ravens, Terps content. And be sure to hop on the message board. Uh, Thanks again to Eric for being on. For Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan, this has been Zach Spedin you've been listening to on the Verds.